Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Dusek, and with us today is Carrie Troutman. Ohio born and raised, Carrie is one of the founders of ToledoPoet.com and the Toledo Poetry Museum page on Facebook, both of which promote Northwest Ohio poetry events. She is a poetry editor for the online journal Red Fez. She has served as a judge or workshop leader for the the Northwest region of Ohio's Poetry Out Loud competition annually since 2016. In 2020, her one-act play titled Mass was selected for production as a staged reading through the Toledo Repertoire Theater's Toledo Voices competition. Carrie is a pushcart nominee, and her poetry and short fiction have appeared in dozens of anthologies and literary journals. Her poetry books are Things That Come in Boxes, to have hoped, artifacts, to be nonchalantly alive, and her newest, Marilyn self-portrait oil on canvas. Also, Carrie will be presenting a workshop for the NFSPS convention this June called All Right, Stop, Collaborate and Listen, which will pair up poets to collaborate on shared exercises. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Could you please start us with a poem? Sure. Um, Since you're feeling under the weather today, I'm going to start with this poem. It's called Early May Sickbed. From bed, I hear my son's whisper stifle my daughter's yelping laugh. Shh, mom's sick. As they tiptoe downstairs, pausing at each creak. I should not hold them. Instead, I swallow pills against the pain as I will someday for my last time. Await the dissolving. Strain to hear the rain. Drops pittering with barest pressure, having forgotten gravity, avoiding unearthing slight grains of soil above the newly lain seeds, waking skulls. Drizzle soaks the seed coats, slowly coaxing their swelling, the tiny hides splitting in razored slits where they have had enough. Warm puddles seeping inside to cushion the shock of rupture, of growth, like hot tea slipping in swallows over a raw, red, feverish throat hmm. thank you so what is your earliest memory of poetry we had a lot of books in the house growing up and there was this one big picture book that was poetry with illustrations these beautiful pen and ink and watercolor illustrations by an artist named Gio Fujikawa and her drawings were so gorgeous and the poems were floating in the page amongst the illustrations and it would just fascinated me as a kid it was a big book and it was gorgeous and I just spent hours and hours pouring through those um we had lots of Dr. Seuss which I consider poetry and I loved those also but that big picture book was the first thing that I knew of as the with the stamp of this is poetry in this book and it was uh Robert Louis Stevenson and and uh, Wordsworth and a lot of sort of classic little poems but ones that were accessible to children um that was that was the first one okay and and did you start writing immediately or where, when did it when did poetry get its claws into you I was eight we had a, a visiting poet come to our school that did workshops with all the classes and she liked what I did you know showed me some attention as this outsider who was this artist and this this big deal in the school this visiting writer and so the fact that she complimented what I did, I was like, oh, this is like a superpower. This is fantastic. I knew there was such thing as books and such things as poems, but the idea that I could write them, like that was just fascinating to me. So I never stopped. I mean, that was it. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Um, <clears throat> your poetry in To Be Nonchalantly Alive, which I love the collection, by the way, it's, it's, it's gorgeous. Um, it's, it's a very deeply sentimental uh, collection and it's rooted to place. You know, you reflect on days that were, you offer homegrown wisdom and, and you, you give these very vivid snapshots of, of scenes. Um, and so how do, how do your connections to place and memory make it into your work? And, and what is your process like? Uh, as far as memory, I tend to write about those particular memories that sort of nag at me. I mean, in really present moments too, it's the same thing when things grab me in that kind of a way. It's like like a cat rubbing up against your legs, asking for pets. Like you just, you can't ignore it. They're not going to go away. You have to address it or or it's just not going to stop. So that I, I noticed that I had those just certain memories that are so vivid that I keep replaying like little film strips in my head and sort of a, if I write them down, then I feel like I've made some sort of sense, made some sort of um, put them into context in my life. And why are they so important to my psyche that they keep nagging at me? And same with present moments. If I'm in a, a scene on the subway in New York or I'm at the beach with my kids or something where some specific little thing in that larger picture grabs me, it'll just nip at me until I have to do something I have to write something about it even if it doesn't amount to anything of great import it's it's a, a sort of a compulsion that I have to address as far as place the other part of your question um it was a long time before I realized like, named myself as a midwestern poet you know with a capital M I wasn't conscious of it it was just who I am and it wasn't until I would see things in other people's poems like Mary Oliver or somebody that I'd be reading the poem and have this sense of familiarity that, that I would pick on, pick up on um, kind of a, a neighborly commonality that I would identify with some writers and not others. And I realized, Oh, she's from Ohio or he grew up in Michigan or something that made me sense that there's something there that I might be doing. That's along the same vein as these other Midwestern poets, you know, like we, we all sprinkle salt on our driveways and we all have, ambrosia salad at the family potluck and these things that 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 maybe are part of this baseline of what we are that is different from someone who was born and raised in Santa Fe or in Barcelona or you know someplace else so um I think it it felt good to lean into that to say yes nature is a part of what I'm going to write about and the weather is something that's going to affect my daily life and work its way into poems and fears associated with weather um that that it's okay that that's part of my identity you know it's not cool to be an Ohioan in any way shape or form but it is who I am and that's it's it's not gonna not be in my poems sure except for during the winter then it's very cool (laughs) (laughs) then it's horrible (laughs) especially this winter holy crap cow (laughs) it's nasty so when you when you say urgency what, what's the most urgent you've ever felt to write a poem was it something that made you drop what you were doing right there and you just had to get it down certainly deaths I mean when my dad died my grandparents and you know, they're always conflicting feelings when somebody dies so I, I don't go to therapy you know I, I don't have a, a priest that I would talk to so I think running to the page is a way I, I've felt I immediately need to work things out good or bad sort of a confessional and sort of a um 
a way to make myself focus, to stop other things and allow myself time to work out my feelings through language um, doesn't, again, mean it's going to necessarily amount to something, but turning to language and turning to words and trying to verbalize things is a way of like thinking out loud and sorting through those intense feelings for me. Yeah. Okay. And and I like that the first two examples you use of like being Midwestern, I'm like, oh yeah, she gets it. Like <laughs> that, that is what we do. <laughs> so at what point did you say I'm, I'm a Midwestern poet? Like you said, you leaned into it. What, what facilitated that lean? Uh, I don't know. I, one of my earlier publications was in a journal called Midwestern Gothic that was out of Michigan. Um, it just recently ceased to exist, which is a bummer because I just put it, just published beautiful work. But I remember when I first became aware of that journal and saw calls for submissions, I thought, oh, I mean, that's, is that a thing? Midwestern writing. And I just hadn't thought about it in that way. Again, because it's not cool to be from the Midwest. I mean, <laughs> who wants to like label themselves? You know, like I'm a housewife poet. Yay. <laughs> you know, so it's, it just seems so mundane. And, and, and also, you know, stepping back, that's millions and millions of people. I mean, the Midwest is like this huge, broad range of, of place, right? I mean, it's like your West Coast or your East Coast or your Midwest. I mean, that's like lots of people. So it seems sort of dumb to put a name on that when it's, so broad but but so reading that journal and the things that they had put out and then submitting it was like I was stamping myself with that like I'm one of you I'm a midwest poet and it's not it's not like I was writing so deeply about Ohio or something I think it's just that a a tone maybe um a sense of familiarity of um like ease and a lack of, I don't want to say arrogance, that's the wrong word, but I think it's like, I, I am what I am. And, and this, the sense of, of authenticity as an, as an authorial voice, as the, the poetic voice that we're not trying to impress anybody or it's a down to earth kind of, a, I don't know. I'm, I can't put it into words, but, that's but okay. It's just, it's something I know when I see that I feel like this is the kind of person who's just putting the words on the page for the love of the language and trying to communicate without any predisposed notions of, of what people are going to think about it. I don't know. I, I think I, I think I sent like reading your work. I definitely sense the familiarity you're describing. And I definitely, I mean, you use proper nouns all the way through. You're describing people doing things. It's, it's almost kind of like Walt Whitman leaves of grass, right? Like you, you have these I wish. You know, people going, <laughs> I, I think that it touches on that, that same vein where you're describing people living a life at a time period. And this is, this is just observational for the reader. And I think that that does define your work. And I do think that that is, very midwestern i think it's <laughs> true <laughs> yeah um so another thing that that you know i want to actually ask about the lives of you know the the subjects that you have in your poems um would you consider your poetry observational and and how do you choose your subjects like what what do you find interesting when you're going to frame somebody in a in a piece in a piece that you write 
yeah, I'm definitely I'd consider my poetry observational for sure. Um, I think I'm I'm curious and nosy, imaginative. So if I see someone that is somehow unusual within a crowd of other people, my brain instantly, my eyes are drawn to that person. And then my brain wants to invent some kind of a story for them. You know, I want to know about them and I'm not going to go walk up and talk to them because I'm a complete introvert. So it's easier just to make that up in my head. So, you know, am I going to tap them and say, boy, I like your hat. No one else here is wearing a hat. Yet you chose to wear this big bright red hat. Tell me about what? No, I'm going to decide why she's wearing that hat and just make up my own fantasy life, you know, about that person. So it's often just that, yeah, sort of a childlike sense of what is that? You know, what, what, you know, what, that is something that's different or, um, yeah, I, I try to just pay attention. I can't avoid paying attention. If I'm walking through the woods with my kids or something, if I hear a bird, I stop and I listen and I think, what is that bird? And I'll point it out to my kids and we listen to it. And then we hear that it's flying from one side of the woods to the other. You know, it's just a focus of attention that will draw me into a sort of a narrative. Often a lot of my poetry is fairly narrative about what might be happening in that moment. And then later in the process is where other layers might come into play. Some sort of metaphor or what is it in the life of the poetic eye that might enter in later what made them focus on that particular thing in that moment that can say something larger about some something societal or you know something broader but in general I'm it's that just something small that just piques my my interest Mm -hmm. I think a lot of artists share that it's like there's a point to express what they don't understand or what they're curious about. Yeah. It's a kind of a, a compulsion to notice something and want to explore it and then kind of record it for posterity so that someone else will notice what you noticed. Um, it's kind of like the photographer in the, the title poem from To Be Nonchalantly Alive or the poem where the title gets its um, um, book gets its title that involves a photographer pulling the car over to take a picture of something they see on the side of the road. You know, I think, in another life, I might have been a photographer. I mean, that's the sort of more immediate way of seeing something and wanting to capture it um, in a in a more immediate way. Okay. Do you think that writing was a foregone conclusion, or do you think that a writer just happened to get to you first? And if you had, mm-hmm. you know, found synergy with a musician or an artist, that you might have had a different life. I don't. Not music, but I always had and my eye on different creative things. I've always, for a while, I wanted to, um, I thought when I was young that I was going to grow up to design ice skating costumes, like couples ice figure skating costumes. I had notebooks full of sketches and then dresses. Like I wanted to be a fashion designer and was fascinated with that. For a while, I wanted to be an interior designer. I had floor plans. I still draw floor plans of homes and did my my senior project in high school um, as a, an internship with an interior designer that I worked with her. So I think I've always leaned towards all of these creative things um, really to my own detriment. I mean, that I'm constantly pulled in all of these scattered directions. Um, photography, I had thought about it just involved equipment and I grew up poor. I mean, I didn't have a camera. I couldn't go buy a camera. 
So I um, didn't have a cell phone camera until much later in life, not until I was well into adulthood, but um, I could see where that would have been something I would have been drawn to. I took art all four years of high school and then some in college drawing. I always love to draw. So yeah, maybe if some other professional had, like you said, gotten to me earlier, maybe that would have been the one, what would have tipped me over. But I mean, as a poor kid, writing is free. So that was, that was certainly easy to gra- to gravitate to. Requires no canvas. Yeah, right. No, no art supplies. Right. <laughs> no, I would literally tore all the blank end papers out of my parents' books on their shelves. Like all the, in you know, the beginning and the end of a book, there'd be like one blank page. I went through their entire bookshelf and ripped out all of those blank end papers and then <laughs> stapled them together to create these ridiculous uneven notebooks that I could write on. But not that, I mean, I'm sure they would have bought me notebooks. We weren't that poor, but that was me like being resourceful. I'm sure my parents probably discovered me like, what the hell did you do to our books? But <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> scavenging for paper. <laughs> in your in your poem to the poets, your your second stanza. I love this poem. It's it's wonderful piece. It comes right near the end of the collection. It's right when you're starting to wrap up and digest everything that you've seen so far. And then you get this statement from the poet, you know, from the speaker. I forage for what I need among you, stanzas of sustenance swelled with the juice of what it means to have been living. So it made me want to ask you, do you find poetry to be a fundamental component component of your humanity? I mean, we've already touched on that a little bit. Um, And what does place, how does place fit into your life and, and community? Like, like, do you have a heightened sense of things and, and you're feeling the empathy of the people around you? Or is it more of like having a camera where you're taking a snapshot and saving it for later or, you know? <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, I have this weird combination of introversion and wanting to be social that I think a lot of writers and other creative people suffer from, that we have this rich internal world that we focus on yet we still do want to be among other people for limited time so i i need that community i think i couldn't be the type of writer that lives in isolation and just locks myself in a cabin and writes for 3 months i mean i need to be among other writers and a lot of other writers are also creative in other ways are also painters or also in theater or also photographers you know i think a lot of us are like that, that we just are drawn to all kinds of arts. So I always feel the most stimulated when I'm among that kind of crowd, you know, those people, creative people. I like to see the world the way they see the world and hear the way they use language to communicate their perspective on the world. Um, I, when I was young, I mean, I, I, I lived most of my life in Toledo, went to college there, became a part of the writing community in Toledo. Um, then when I was a young mother, I, I had two babies right away and I still was submitting things and reading things, but I became fairly disconnected being home with two little babies away from all of that kind of thing, the readings and workshops and friends and things. And it was, and then I moved to Finley from Toledo, had baby number three. So that even exacerbated that more. And it was a very difficult time being severed from that community. I mean, I realized how much I needed to be among other writers. 
And so it was very, it was very isolating to have that disconnect, to just be a writer on my own and not be a writer who lives that sort of writing life amongst a writing community. I mean, really it was Facebook who, that kind of brought that um, all back. I mean, in, when I lived in Toledo young with my first two kids, we didn't have internet in our house. I did not have a smartphone. So it was later once I had those two things and then found people on Facebook and saw what people were doing, got to read their poems again. Um, and then eventually when the kids were old enough, you know, get, be able to get back out to events and things. It was like this rejuvenation that, like, oh yes, these are my people. I need these people. Like you, like imagine if you're playing at the beach all day and you, you, you don't realize how thirsty you are until you try, take a drink of water. And then you're like, oh my gosh it's 90 degrees. I've been out all day and I'm so thirsty and that water tastes so good. I mean, that's what it was like, but I, um, I thought I have to do whatever I can to not lose any of this. So that I've now raised five kids and worked and had to keep, um, make a point of keeping in touch with that community, um, to keep me feeling whole as a person, as a writer. Yeah. I, I that personally that resonates deeply and I, I suspect a lot of people listening will feel that way too because I I know exactly what it's like to have two young kids and that you know they grow up and while they're while they're young and especially pr- before they hit kindergarten it's 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 a lot of you just don't have time you, you don't have time yeah. to get out you don't have the wherewithal you're exhausted and finding poetry afterward is intoxicating. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. hard to want to let it go once you're, you're in it. Um, mm-hmm. what, what was your approach? How, how did your approach differ from as a young poet to a poet who was reemerging from her chrysalis? Like what, <laughs> what, what, what made the, the community, like, how did you engage with it differently? How did you approach publication differently? <clears throat> I, I had, been publishing all along that's something I could do on my own time here and there so that I had always been doing um as far as the actual writing of the poetry itself um the craft of it I think due to just my age and life experiences over those years I think my perspective change and where my earlier work um was much more self-centered I mean I uh, let's face it I'm still every poem I write even if it's about somebody else is really about me I mean it is all self-centered um I have that sort of writerly arrogance that I think the whole world needs to hear what comes out of my miraculous brain but I agree um, but that's I, why you're here <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I think, you know, having kids and then there's more at stake. I mean, life takes on, there are things that are more important than just, um, you know, hanging out at a coffee shop with friends and reading poems that'll make each other laugh and, and, um, writing about each other and to each other. And, um, so I'd like to think the things that the work became a little more, you know, had a little more depth to it, a little more urgencies, you know, immediacy when I'm writing about a poem about a f- being afraid my child's going to die in a blizzard or something, you know, these are things that I wouldn't have written about when I'm 19. Uh, but when you're 40, this is the kind of thing your brain thinks about is what happens when I die. What are my kids going to do? And, you know? Yeah. And have you visited Cleveland yet? 
I have. And yes. I love that, that, <laughs> that poem. I love reading that poem when I'm in a room full of Clevelanders or a poem. It's called I've Never Been to Cleveland. And I wrote it before I had ever been. I mean, the gist of the poem is that I haven't been there, but I sensed that it would be similar to these other Rust Belt Midwestern cities that that I knew. And it did not just the point it, it felt that's what it felt like it felt uh, very familiar to me and I, I love it um, we have a subscription to the Broadway series at Playhouse Square so we go to see musicals um, every couple of months or so because I'm kind of a Broadway nerd so I am um, I'm there you know we get dinner downtown and, and go to a show and I've been to some readings there and have lovely friends who live there so <laughs> one of my publishers lives near there so so yes I'm pro Cleveland. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I had to ask, you know. <laughs> All right, right. So, so tell us about your your poetry advocacy. I mean, you, you work for ToledoPoet.com and the Toledo Poetry Museum. Uh, and, and what kind of events have you guys worked on and how effective have they been at creating community, do you think? Well, I mean, I won't flatter myself to think that they create community. I think we hope they keep people connected. So ToledoPoet.com has... Uh, among other things on the website, a calendar of local Northwest Ohio poetry events. So we wanted a place where um, we, there was so much going on in Toledo poetry wise when we started the page, which is like early 2010s, I think um, that we wanted a, a centralized place where people could find events. If people were coming from out of town, they could find events to attend. You know, the goal was if someone Googles Toledo poetry, they can find, oh, here's a whole calendar of all Toledo poetry. Fantastic. So when I travel, I would look for things like that and I couldn't find things. And I would think, okay, I'm in San Francisco or wherever I'm visiting. Why can't I find just a calendar of any, there's gotta be poetry stuff happening at San Francisco for God's sakes, but just a simple Google search, I couldn't find it. I'd have to dig, you know, look up bookstores and then go to each bookstore's website and see if they have a calendar for what they, you know, was like pulling teeth to just try to find some place to dip my poetry toes in while I'm visiting. Mm -hmm. So we have been successful at that we've had authors who find us either through ToledoPoet.com or the Toledo Poetry Museum page on Facebook who've contacted us for just that to say, well, I'm in town doing a book tour. Can you help me set up a reading? And yep, we find them a venue, we get a crowd, and then we set up a, a reading for somebody who wants to see, you know, what poetry can do or what Toledo can do for their work. You know, so people are finding us, but the main focus was just trying to connect what was already there and have a, a hub where we can promote that. And so if someone was setting, wanted to set up, let's say a weekly reading series, they could look at the calendar and see, oh, well, I see there's already a regular series on Saturday and on Wednesday, and maybe I'll do Thursday then and not, not conflict with what's already going on. Sure. Do, and can, do you think that these kind of projects can be expanded upon or replicated elsewhere and like do you think that that would be a useful thing because it would be cool yeah. to have something it's neat to have that regional focus but it'd be mm -hmm. also not nice to have you know more centralized hubs also yeah yeah I mean I I, I know there are places having uh, Cleveland Poetics I mean that blog has been around forever and does a great job of, of housing Cleveland um, focused events and things um, I'm sure other cities have them. I don't have technical skills, so I have no IT skills at all. The the woman who set up our website, Trina Stolak, she moved to Memphis and all of the 
website capabilities went with her. So I know how to update the calendar, but that's it. The rest of us can't figure out WordPress and we don't know how to do it. But so it's easily a replicatable thing, especially if someone knows what they're doing and can create a fully functioning website that can do all the things they want to do. I mean, we had a tab with local authors that we'd had photos and bios of local Toledo poets in case someone wants a poet to come to their school or something, they could click and see local poets, but we just now don't know how to add to that. Um, We had a a link for venues so that poetry friendly venues, we could have info. So if someone wants to do a reading, they could say, okay, this is a a bar that has a back room and they like to do readings. And here's the contact info for the person who, uh, you know, the manager that I can get a hold of, you know, that uh, is another useful thing we had on there that we just can't update. So somebody with wherewithal could do that. And if I had more time, I would expand to Instagram and Twitter with it also, which I don't because I just don't have time. But that's something that would be certainly useful for someone who wanted to do something like this in their area to especially get younger people. I mean, you know, it's people my age, I won't lump you in with me, but who are on Facebook, you know, your teens and 20 year olds are not on Facebook. So that's not that helpful to have that there. Say, I'm pretty sure we're a lot closer in age than I am with <laughs> <You're> very <laughs> <Teenager>. kind though. <laughs> so <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so you've you've worked on the Red Fez for a long time. And okay. um do you so what what have you worked on or what have you learned while working on the Red Fez? And uh do you have any advice for people who are new to literary magazines, either submitting to them, which is probably a lot, you know, covers a lot bigger part of the audience or even people working on them reading. I, I mean, submitting, read the guidelines. I mean, if you think it goes without saying, but it's amazing how many submissions come in that they just obviously have not read our guidelines, which are not particularly strict or difficult. I mean, some journals have kind of pages of guidelines. Ours not, but follow the guidelines. Um, I don't read any of the intro cover letter type stuff that comes with I just read the poems. Um, So that's just me. But I think sometimes writers stress about what to say to make themselves look good or um, suck up to the the editors, for lack of a better term, um, in the cover letter type thing. But just the just we need the work to be good. Don't worry about the other stuff too much. Um, And if someone rejects you, it's not personal. I mean, I knew, I knew that always as a writer, but it, as an editor, I can vouch for that. I mean, it's not personal at all. It's the poems. We're rejecting the poems. We're not rejecting the poet. So when someone passes on your work, just try again. If we tell you try again, we mean it, send again. But if we also, if we pass on you five, six, seven times, maybe find someplace else to send your work. Maybe it's not a good match and maybe don't keep sending us stuff <laughs> yeah there are a lot of there are a lot of places you know that if you get rejected find someplace else too what's the most memorable submission you've gotten oh I probably shouldn't say I don't okay. want to be mean <laughs> <laughs> I mean we have had people go on social media and like bad mouth us people I mean there's a writer that we had published several times and then when we rejected him a couple times in a row he went on every platform and said how useless we are and how we don't know what we're doing and just because we turned him down so uh. Oof. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and what what kind of projects are you working on right now oh gosh 
I have three full-length poetry manuscripts that I've been sending out trying to find a home for and a novella and two short story collections. So all of that I've been submitting and just need a publisher. And then I have three other ongoing poetry manuscripts that I'm working on. One that's autobiographical poems, one that's poems two are about my children, and then another uh, collection that all are works in progress. But so a lot, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And and are you heavily involved on the administrative side of Toledo's poetry scene? No, not really. No, I mean, I maintain the calendar for the website and promote things on the Toledo Poetry Museum Facebook page. So as I know about events, I push those out and I send out um, a periodic email. We have like 200 subscribers or so to the ToledoPoet.com calendar. So I'll send out um, an email with upcoming events for the you know, the, the oncoming couple of weeks to help remind people of things. Um, but that's really all I do. I mean, I've, I've helped set up readings over the years here and there, but with COVID, a lot of things kind of slowed and are just coming back as far as in-person events and things. Um, so that kind of stuff will come back. Yeah. You're, you're, you're a writing jack of all trades because you've written plays too. You've written plays and fiction and nonfiction. And, um, yeah. So could you talk a little bit about that process? Like describe, you know, what, what makes you choose a genre and, and poetry probably your primary, but, but which, mm-hmm. which other ones have you enjoyed? Yeah, from a, from a time standpoint, poetry is the easiest thing as a, a busy adult to write, you know, in, and edit in small bursts. I wrote more fiction when I was younger. Um, the, uh, the novella, I mean, it barely, that was me kind of just pushing myself to try something more long form. And it barely even, it's not even a novel, like it just barely into like novella page length. But which is why it's impossible to publish it because it's a ridiculous page length. But um, I, I like the challenge of a longer form to make myself maintain the focus for longer and not just rapid fire, you know, work on something and put it away and then work on something and put it away. I wanted something that was more of a sustained project. Um, and the, actually the novellas began as a short story that was part of a, um, a short story that had these small, these like vignettes, like small stories within one larger story. And I had two different people read that piece and they both pointed to this one section that they said, this one, I don't think fits with these others. There's something different about the tone of this one. So I pulled it out and then I ended up expanding that one into the novella, which was, um, it just felt like it needed more explanation, more time than what that its original form could give it, mm-hmm. which was um, interesting to me um, to, to explore it and, and expand it further. Sure. And, but and the I- plays came from, I did a, an online uh, course a couple of years ago that was a, a, like a massive online course. We had people internationally all doing this online course through, I think it was from, through Iowa, University of Iowa. But it was um, on, it was a course, just a summer thing, like a six weeks course on the intersection of playwriting and poetry. And I had never really done any playwriting, not since high school. I think I wrote and and junior high. I had done some one acts for drama club and things, but um, I thought it would be interesting to take this course. So there were people in there who were strictly playwrights who were 
trying poetry for the first time. And then there were people like me who are the opposite. And so we would, there were little assignments to write just a scene or, or, you know, a three page scene or kind of getting things broader until we had a one act play. And that I ended up submitting to this Toledo Voices competition and it was selected. um, And they do just staged readings of the people who win, um, which hasn't happened yet because of COVID. It was delayed twice and I'm told it's supposed to happen this year, but COVID derailed that. But, um, but that was, that was interesting. I like, I like attending plays. I've always liked drama, but hadn't made myself try writing in that way, which was interesting because it's just a whole different use of language. I mean, it's all language. I mean, you have some obviously director's notes and costumes and whatnot, but it's, it can't be anything in my head. Everything from my head has to be there in those words. And it's just a really different challenge, the directness of it. That's cool. And it's, it's neat hearing actors say those words for the first time, like here. Come yeah, well, I, I can't wait. I'm excited to actually get to hear it when they actually do it. It'll be fun. That's exciting. Do you, do you know when it's being put on? I don't know. They said they were going to have it on for this year, but they, it's not on their calendar yet. So I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Um, if it's in the area, let me know. Cause I'd be interested in seeing it. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so what, what do you think are the benefits of, studying poetry like what do you get when you go to other genres what did you notice was transferable skill-wise craft-wise the the paying attention I mean every detail counts you know the the what's the the, is it Chekhov says like if there's a gun in the first scene it has to at some point go off you know there's that sense that every every little detail has to be there for a reason and has to communicate something that's the same whether it's poetry or fiction or or drama um the that you make choices and those choices have to have some sort of purpose and i can see it in other writing when it's not when when then those choices don't seem to have been made when things feel arbitrary and there's a there becomes a sense of distrust as a reader that i don't trust that the author is really guiding my hand in the right direction. They don't know where they're going and I shouldn't be following them if I can't trust them to have made the proper decisions with the craft all along. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, so it, I, things can things can veer and, and meander and go in strange directions as long as I feel like I'm following and those choices are purposeful and everything is serving the work in itself. Um, so that's what I try to do. I hope that makes sense. It does. It does. It makes a lot of sense because I, I mean, you, you know, in a workshop setting, you might see somebody make a mistake once and they might've done it on purpose, but if it only happens once and it's in a random spot, it, it feels yeah. like a mistake. You know what I mean? Right. Right. You want to trust, you know, it, you want, I want to feel as a reader, like, like a, like, I'm a child and the, the writer is my parent and, and they're, and I can, they're going to give me the best advice and they wouldn't lead me astray. And they know what they're doing. Even if I don't see what it is, why, why they've made these choices by the end, it should become clear. And I think, yep, they knew exactly what they were doing all along. I want that, um, to feel that control over the text as a reader and as a writer. In your experience with the literary magazine, uh, what are what are some 
early red flags that immediately set off alarm bells in your head as this 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 poem's losing my trust early <laughs> oh gosh uh, extraneous drug and alcohol use i mean there are a lot of poets that just the the title will be like sitting drunk in my car on a friday night and i'm like okay i can see i've read this poem 75 times i mean it's an attempt you're trying to sound cool you're trying to seem more relaxed than you really are and there's sort of a false cool kid costume that people put on that um that they think if they sound like bukowski then we're going to take them more seriously um (laughs) that (laughs) um not to pick on bukowski but i will pick on the people who think they're bukowski no it's a perfect example (laughs) (laughs) so so yeah so there because there's a lack of authenticity there that you know right away i feel like this is a, a writer who is too focused on what they think the reader is going to think of them and the the character they're trying to put on instead of just say, saying something real about themselves or about what they see in life instead they have to do it through a sort of a this character that i don't know becomes more obvious than i think that writer knows it is sure sure um, okay, would you like to wrap us up with a poem? Yeah, sure. So I'm going to read, this one is in To Be Nonchalantly Live. It's actually a, a morning poem. It's an obad, um, but I'm going to end with a morning poem. This is Banana Obad. I awoke having slept on the couch, my cheek no doubt pocked with pillow texture, And before I registered even the time as judged by lights blue between draped seams, and before my tongue had time to crave coffee's acids on its buds, I smelled the bananas, exquisitely ripe. My body actually sought them out, finding them nestled in their blue glass bowl, their daintily freckled skins like a child's summer cheeks, blushed bronze enough to enrich in the gaudy yellow of rawness. They had roused me with their buttered orchid scent, like sweet liquor in the dark air, like a sunrise, those sirens begging to be split, whispering sweetly, their skin to mine, today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. All right. Well, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA blog. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And Carrie, thank you so very much for coming. Thank you, Chairman.